Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Well, hello, Abundant Life Church. It is so great to be with you, to those in the room with me, uh, to those of you who are watching or listening online uh, through YouTube or a podcast, however you are joining us today, we're so glad that you're a part of this as well. My name is Jeremy, the lead pastor here, and if you are new with us today, you picked an amazing day to begin. It's not normally as good as it's gonna be today, okay? So I'm just like telling you up front, lower your expectations next week, but we're so glad that you're here. Uh, We are a church about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others, and uh, we're so thrilled that you're a part of this, and today I get to introduce uh, a, a longtime friend and mentor to me who has had an unbelievable impact in my life, and I was thinking, how do you introduce someone like that, that has uh, shaped me so deeply, uh, so profoundly, and I, I considered a few options. I thought, well, I could talk about how he's a pastor of a church in Minnesota, how he planted the church and continues to be pastor there, and, and to do day in and day out ministry of, in a church in that setting. I could talk about how uh, He's an internationally uh, renowned theologian and, and literally can you know, go to a depth of theology that most people uh, just can't even fathom. I mean, just amazing level there. Or I could talk about how he's written uh, 22 different books and, uh, and has addressed so many different topics about what it means to follow Jesus. But I'm not gonna talk about any of those things. Instead, uh, I, I thought of this. Uh, earlier this week, I had the opportunity uh, to share in a world religions class at a, at a local college, and, uh, and I was sharing with uh, different students, and, and they like really did not have an understanding of Christianity. And so they're asking questions, and I'm doing my best to try to explain what is Christianity all about, what is the essence of this, how do I make this as simple as I can, as clear as I can, and I wasn't quite sure I was doing a good job. And some of the questions they're asking, I'm like, man, I don't know if this is confusing or not confusing. And I was really trying hard. And toward the very end, I had gone on for like an hour. At the very end, this lady raises her hand. She goes, okay. And she has a really confused look on her face. I'm going, I am not doing a good job. And she goes, all right, let me see if I'm understanding your argument correctly. You're saying that if like, if Christianity is like this, like I meet Jesus, I follow Jesus, and I look like Jesus, I was like, amen. I'm like, wow, you just said in one sentence better than I've said for an hour, yes, let's go with that. I like that understanding of Christianity. And I was like, I keep replaying that one sentence she said, because I was like, what a great way to summarize Christianity in her words. And I thought, this is why I, I love Greg so much. Greg has allowed me to meet Jesus in new ways, to follow Jesus better, and to look more like Jesus in the way that I live this out. And, and for that, I will always be grateful. But you get the chance to benefit from that as well. So without further ado, would you please put your hands together, give a warm, abundant life welcome to our friend, Dr. Greg Boyd. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. It's really an honor to to be invited to be here. Uh, I'm married to Shelly Boyd, a.k.a. Biso. I've always called her Biso. And uh, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman, keeps my life working. We've got three grown children and six grandchildren. We've been married for 40 years, and she's a lucky woman. All right, huh? Yeah, we're, uh, we're, we feel real blessed. Yeah, I knew Jeremy way back when he was a wee little lad, wee little budding theologian. And uh, I, I just, I loved his mind. We've had some great theological conversations. I appreciate that statement. 
Uh, if you can help somebody look a little more like Jesus, uh, your life is taking on an eternal meaning. And that's what it's all about, amen? Uh, just helping people see Jesus, be like Jesus, and help change the world in a Jesus kind of way. I, I'm excited for you guys. I, I, and if Jeremy didn't put me up to any of this or whatever. I'm telling you, I think you have got uh, a, a, a crackerjack preacher, teacher, leader here. And, and I, I think you're really... <laughs> Uh, just coming in here, I don't know much about, about the church, but just the, knowing a little bit about how your you know, population is exploding around here. And, and um, I just see such a unique chemistry going on here that, uh, I'll, I'll just say this, I think you're sitting on a spiritual powder keg, and I mean that in the best sense of the word, not that the church is going to blow up, but the church is going to blow up in a good way, all right? Uh, and I encourage you to buckle your seatbelts and buy in on this thing. Because you get to have, and this is true, whenever you're doing anything that's significant in the kingdom, as you guys clearly are, it means your life is meaningful. You get to pour into something that counts, that counts for eternity. How many people get to do that? It's, it's, I, I love your, your slogan, being poured out to help people really experience the goodness of the good news. Uh, keep doing that, folks. People are starving, and uh, I, think, I think you guys are in for a fun ride. And I want to have a little to do with it. I'm going to be keeping an eye on this. I, I think this is really cool what you guys are, are, are going into here. So anyways, Jeremy thought it'd be good if I just talk a little bit about, uh, you know, kind of introduce myself by talking a little bit about Letters from a Skeptic. It's a book, one of the first books I wrote. And actually, I didn't write it. My dad and I both wrote it. We, we have this correspondence that, and here's a spoiler alert, it led to his salvation um, at the age of 73, yeah. So um, I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. But first, I want to uh, have you turn to a scripture uh, it's found in Isaiah. That's way back in the Old Testament, just before Ezekiel or Jeremiah, right around there. You find Proverbs, just go a little further. It's Isaiah 49. And um, it won't be clear what this verse has to do with anything I'm saying until halfway through what I'm saying. And even then it might be opaque, but we'll, let's see how this goes out. Here's what the Lord says. We'll start with verse 14. Isaiah 49, verse 14. He says, Zion, which is Israel, is saying, the Lord has forsaken us, forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. But then the Lord says, can a woman forget her nursing child or show compassion or, or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these perhaps could forget, but I will never, ever forget you. See, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Uh, talk about... This dialogue that I had with my father that ended up uh, leading him to recognize Jesus as Lord and me recognizing and discovering God to be a very, very good mother. You'll see what I'm talking about here in a little bit. So let me tell you about my dad. Um, my dad and I were pretty much living on our own from the, my age 13 on. Uh, my mom died when I was two, and he had remarried pretty quickly. And some marriages are made in heaven, but this marriage was made in the other place, and it was warfare from, word, from the get-go. And then at the age of 13, I came, he came to pick me up from cross-country. And see, when the, my parents divorced at the age of 13, the family just blew apart. I had one sister run away. Another one moved in with a boyfriend. Uh, two of my half-sisters uh, moved out with my stepmother, and my brother went away to college. So was, I was on my own, and my dad was a traveling salesman, 13 on. Uh, it's a prescription for disaster. So from 13 on, I kind of lived this life of just drug, sex, and rock and roll until I found Christ at the age of 17. Uh, but uh, so my dad and I were on our own here for the most part. My dad is, it was really an interesting character. He was super smart. Could, uh, you didn't want to argue with him. He was really quick. Um, but he was also really vile. He was, and he, he wasn't like really educated. He read a lot. He was a racist reader, but 
In fact, his goal was to be, he was going to be a doctor or a surgeon, and then in the course of going to school, he got a girl pregnant and then had to get out of school to get married and support the family. And, and his life was kind of, he was always disappointed with the fact that he ended up being a tire salesman whereas he wanted to be a doctor. And my dad didn't have a lot of ethical rules. Uh, he was a pretty free guy, but he did have one ethical rule that he hammered home to me starting at about the age of 11 or 12, I think, and that is do not get a girl pregnant. It was just, it was the one rule in the household. He didn't care if he had sex, but, but don't get the girl pregnant. I'm, he got me a box of condoms for my 15th birthday. I mean, that's the kind of daddy he was. So he was really great. At, he was really moral on social issues, social justice, racism. He was really big on that. And looking back on it, I, I'm amazed, actually. I didn't, I didn't appreciate just how progressive he was for a guy in his 60s and 70s to be so, such an activist. So on that issue, he was like really wonderful, but on sexual issues, he had the morality of an amoeba or a rabbit or something. I don't know. It was just not there. Sorry, Dad. But it just was, you know, and, and that's, that's another story. But he, he, he was looking at it from the outside. The last person you'd ever think would become a Christian. He just, he was, there's a hardness to him. Um, he, he was angry a lot because he, he, he was smart, but he got to the point where he began, he hated stupidity. And he, he, he was right. Racism is stupid, so he hated it. But it ended up being that pretty much anyone who disagreed with him is stupid. And the world is stupid. And so he was always complaining about the stupid world. And he was becoming an angrier and angrier person. And I was concerned with him, actually, because I took care of his mother, and his mother gets an award for miserableness. Uh, his, his mother, God bless her, but, but she had a tragedy when she, she was raising a young lady, and the gal died, and she lost her faith because of it, and she turned out to be a miserable lady. And I took care of her in a nursing home the last three years of her life, so believe me, I know what I'm talking about. The only person on the planet who ever claimed that Job had it easy compared to her. She said that. Job had nothing compared to what she was going through. So, you, you know, she, she was a, this angry person. I saw my dad becoming that. Well, I become a Christian when I'm 17. I uh, drug, sex, and rock and roll for a couple of years. And, but there's an emptiness. I always had this emptiness and a sense of what's the purpose of life. And, and it just, I, I just found life to be absurd. And so I'm hungry and I start dating this girl who invites me to church um, because she wanted to win a blow dryer. She wasn't a Christian because she was dating me. I mean, a Christian could she be? Uh, but I was a kind of wild guy. But uh, she, I, I was always talking about, is there life after death? Is there a God? And things like that. So she brought me to church to win a blow dryer. They're having a contest. Whoever brought the most people to church uh, for this month, it's a blow dryer. And I liked her, so I wanted to get the blow dryer. So I went to the church. And she never thought I'd like it. It was kind of a wild Pentecostal church, but something grabbed me. And six weeks later, I give my life to Christ. Now, my dad hates stupidity. And if there's anything that's stupid, it's those born-again Christians. Or he used to call them born-again types. Uh, he always revealed against born-again types. Uh, those Bible-believing, Bible-thumping idiots. And so when I become a Christian, he's not happy. Uh, my son, I want him to go up to be a doctor or something, and now he's going to become one of these born-again idiots. And so he, he tries to get me out of it. He kind of sees it as a cult. And actually, this church was kind of cultic when I look back on it. Uh, he had reason to be concerned. But, but he was trying to get me out. But while he's trying to get me out, I'm trying to get him in. I became the world's most obnoxious evangelist for one year of my life, and I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I'm nothing if not consistent, okay? And so, so they would paint this image that we are responsible for every person who's going to go to hell that we could have saved. 
Like, and, 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 like, so you have to share the gospel. And so I would get this picture in my head of, of, of like, on the judgment day, all these people are there, and, 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 and they're going to go to hell. That's what we believed back then. And it's going to go for eternal hell. And, and they go, Greg, I would have believed if you would have just told me, but you're too busy watching football. You're too busy thinking about that or doing your homework. So now they're going to go to hell, and it's my fault, and I'm supposed to go to heaven and enjoy myself. So I was, I was obnoxious. Because I'm going to have to answer for all these people. And I, oh, high school. I, I didn't go to my reunion for 20 years because I was so embarrassed. <laughs> it's like, can you remember even back when I was cool? Before I, uh, Anyways, so uh, I'm trying to get him and he's trying to get me out. It doesn't work at all. And, and we, we come to these arguments and fights. And, and so after about six months, we called a truce. It's like, okay, you know what? He basically said, okay, if you want to believe that idiot, stupid stuff, go ahead. I'm not going to stop you. Uh, you'll outgrow it eventually. And I said, okay, well then, I'm going to see, you're on your own before God. I'm going to stop trying to win your soul. That's fine, Dad. Okay, fine. So we go on that way. For 15 years, we have this truce. Once in a while, I'd bring it up, and he goes, what's the point? Nobody knows what any, any, anything is anyways. And so it just didn't go anywhere. 15 years later, I'm uh, invited to uh, be in this debate with this famous uh, Muslim scholar, Jamal Badwi. And uh, I'm putting together my, my material for this debate. It's on, on the divinity of Jesus, um, which then was also related to the idea of the Trinity and stuff. And so as I'm preparing for this debate, I am being impressed once again with just how compelling the evidence is that Jesus was not just some great prophet, that Jesus was, in fact, uh, the Son of God, which means he's Yahweh present on earth. The evidence for it, the historical evidence and the philosophical reasoning behind it is very compelling. And so I'm putting this all together and I'm thinking, man, this is the most plausible view out there. But I'm grieving because I've never had a chance to share this with my dad. And I know he was curious. Um, he thought for sure that once I get through with my BA degree, I'd outgrow this, this born-again silly stuff, and I didn't. And then he thought for sure I went away to Yale to get a master's, and he's like, oh, Ivy League school. For sure he's going to drop that fairy tale stuff when, when he goes through that, but I didn't. And then I went to Princeton and got a PhD, and he was certain that I would outgrow this Christian mythology stuff by then, but I didn't. So I know he was curious, but he was afraid to ask because I might give an answer that he might have to take seriously. So at one point, I just thought to myself as I'm putting together this, 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 this debate, why don't I just try writing him? And, and there's something about a distance where, where you have time to think about your answer. You're not on the spot. Something about our chemistry when we're talking face-to-face. -face, we're just too alike or something. We just ignite each other, trigger each other. But when there's a distance there, sometimes that's easier. And so I just wrote him a letter and said, Dad, would you like to talk about this? Um, if nothing else, you know, just as a, as a father-son relationship, I love you, you love me, and, and, and part of what love is is sharing what's important to you. And my faith is, frankly, the most important thing in my life. And I've never had a chance to share it with you. And I'd like to give you a chance to share with me why you're not a Christian. Let me tell you all the reasons why I am. You tell me all the reasons why you're not, and let's see where it leads us. Um, and if nothing else, it, it's just, I'll know you better, and you'll know me better. What do you say? And to, a little bit to my surprise, he says, oh, I'm game. Uh, he had just retired, had some time on his hands, and so he says, fine, you want to talk about this? Let's go for it. So right out of the gate, he comes up with some pretty tough questions, like if the church is the true vehicle by which God's going to bring a message to the world, why has the church done so much evil? Think of the thousands, the millions of people that were executed in horrible, unthinkable ways in the name of Jesus and the Inquisition, the Crusades, and other things like that. 
How's that possible, Greg? And then from there he went on to why is nature so screwed up? Why is there so much violence in nature? Why do people suffer so much? If God's all good and all caring, how come there are parasites that are specially designed to worm their way into the eyes of children and eat them from the inside out? What's up with that? It's a good question. And how can you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And why would you trust the Gospels? And how could God allow anyone to go to hell? And, go to hell? and so on and so on and so on. Now, I give the best answers I can give to all those things. And if you're curious what the answers are, you'll have to just get the book. Actually, this is one long infomercial right here. No. <laughs> I addressed the answers as best I could. And, and actually, we had gotten to the point where he came to accept that there's good reason to think that there is, ultimate reality is, is, a, is a personal being like us. I, I agree for the existence of a personal God. And I talked about the problem of evil some. But then he came up with this question. It was, it was basically this. Okay, I can see why you might need to posit a personal being to explain our personalness. So, yeah, okay, maybe there's a personal God, but he doesn't care about us if he's personal. And then he asked a question that changed the tenor of our, of our correspondence. Uh, it was a question, it's letter 11, I believe it was, where he asked about my mother, Arlyle. And he says this. He says, when Arlyle was dying, Arlyle's my mother, uh, she was 33, and I was two, and she had just given birth to my uh, baby sister. In fact, they found she had leukemia while she was in the hospital with my, my sister. Maybe God doesn't listen to the prayers of sinful adults. I could get that, but, but he should have at least heard the cries of you kids. Instead, you kids were left motherless, and that set in motion a rather unfortunate history you yourself know only too well. If God has been personally, had been personally concerned with us, Greg, he'd have spared your mother and spared all of us a tremendous amount of pain. You can try to explain this, I suppose, with your cosmic warfare theory. That's just, I point out, biblically speaking, uh, there's this Satan who is interfering and corrupting aspects of nature. Okay, so we'd already talked about that. He goes, yeah, you could try to explain it that way. But it seems a lot easier to simply conclude that he doesn't give a damn. Whatever his personal agenda is in the universe, I don't see that it has a whole lot to do with our little earth. There you have it, Greg, straight from the gut. Straight from the gut. See, at this point, the tenor of the conversation changed somewhat because I was getting, my dad was talking a little bit from the heart here. We had been all in the head up to this point, academic stuff. But here he was tipping his hand a little bit to what I think was really going on. I don't think it's that so much that my dad didn't believe in God. I think he was just very, very disappointed. Because when he really put all the cards on the table and wanted God to come through to spare my mother, nothing changed, nothing happened. And he just found it, and I think this is true of many atheists, it's just easier, you'd rather not believe in God than, than be disappointed with a God that exists. Better to just live, if he doesn't care about us, then let's just live as though he doesn't care about us, because I'd rather not be disappointed than be disappointed. And so, his heart was broken, and there's a pain that was there. Now, I, I could try to like give an academic answer as to why God couldn't have spared my mother, given the situation or whatever. I, I talk about that in a book called Is God to Blame? All the reasons why prayer can be hindered. But that's not what was called for, I didn't think, in this letter. At this point, my dad spoke from the gut, from the heart, and so I thought he needed to get an answer from the gut, from the heart. And so, instead of giving him an academic answer, I gave him a testimony, and the testimony was simply about the healing that Jesus can bring into your life. 
I was basically saying, Dad, this, this Jesus that I'm talking about, I don't think he's just the most, the most plausible way of explaining the world, though I do think he is the most plausible way of explaining the world. But he's not just a conclusion at the end of the argument. He's a reality. He's a person who wants a genuine relationship with you, and that relationship can change your life and can heal the wounds that are there, including the wound that you, occurred, that, that you, that you acquired when mom died. And you were left with these kids and no one to take care of them and, and then the rest of those unfortunate events. And so I gave him just a little testimony about what Jesus had done in my life. And what Jesus had done in my life was this. Um, when my parents divorced, at the age, my, my stepmother, I think she went through like a, some kind of a emotional crisis or breakdown in the years that she was married to my dad. Because I went to her funeral and I saw all these photos before she married my dad and she's happy. And I saw all these photos after she was divorced from my dad and she's happy. But for the 11 years she's divorced, married to my dad, she's miserable. Not one picture is she smiling. She's miserable. And I think my dad was just a pretty miserable person to live with, I mean, among other things. But she got twisted and I don't remember any kind words from her. I, I don't remember uh, any love from her, any affection. Uh, I never saying I love you or anything. What I remember was a lot of abuse. When she would get angry, she would just snap. And, and, and do some really uh, nasty things. Um, my dad never knew about this, and we were told that if he ever found out about it, there'd be hell to pay, and, and so we, it, it was the secret, family secret. He didn't find out until about age 10, uh, when I was age 10, and it's a weird story, because he didn't believe in God or anything, but he's driving out of town on one of his two-week trips, and he gets about 40 minutes away down to Hudson, Wisconsin, and, and he said that just as he was crossing the state line, something told him to go back to the house. It's something. And so he just listened to his gut, went back to the house, and, and when he got there, uh, he caught my stepmother beating me with a two-by-four. And I was beaten up pretty bad. And because um, those things usually happened at the beginning of the trips when he would leave because that way the bruises were gone by the time he would get back. And he caught, and this was the beginning of the end when, when he caught that. And that's the kind of thing that that, that went on there. So they divorced when I'm 13. My dad and I come home and the house was empty and he says, blankety, blank, blank. Here's the thing, my dad was smart, but he was so vile. He, he, he was the world's greatest cursor. This guy could put together paragraphs with only three clean words in the whole thing, the, and, and maybe, or something like that. <laughs> I really, if you had one of those bleep outs, it'd be almost all beep, 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 and then beep, 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 and up here, beep, 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 and then you could take that and beep, beep. It was just, he could do it on the instant. As kids, we marveled at it. It's like we're proud of it. He, he was just like a poet. It's like, how did he come up with that? It's brilliant. I wish I would have had a recorder back there or something. It's kind of embarrassing, though, because he was angry a lot. And man, when people cut him off, he'd road rage. He'd be drive alongside of them and start putting together those paragraphs. And his kids would be in the back like, oh, this is so embarrassing. But he, uh, so he, 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 he could swear up a storm. He was a smart cursor, put it like that. So he came home and the place was empty and he goes blankety blank, blank, blank. The old blankety blank is floop the coop. Let's go party. And so we went out and celebrated. And I, I, was, I, was, I was relieved. She's gone. It's wonderful. And I don't remember thinking about my stepmother once after that, that day. I, I never talked about her. I, don't, I wasn't angry with her. I wasn't happy with her. She didn't exist to me. I, I was done. I, that's it. I become a Christian at the age of 17 and then around age 20, age 20, God begins to deal with me about something that I didn't know was there. I bet some of you had, have had this experience. Well, all of a sudden, uh, you begin to realize he's pulled, pulled the cover back to reveal that I had a world of anger and rage towards my stepmother that I didn't even know I had. 
It was ugly. It was sitting there. And I had such a thick veneer of decency over it. But way down there, there was this rage. And, and I, I, I know what happened now. The Lord's done some healing work in my life. And I, but what happens, and some of you I'm sure have been through this, is that when you're, I lived in a world where it was totally unpredictable. Pain could come on you at any moment. I had, I now realize ADHD back then, they just called it having a, having a demon child. Uh, but, but I... <laughs> You know, and they sent me to Mass. I had to go to Mass every morning, and Mass was said in Latin. This is pre-Vatican. And I have ADHD. How do you think that works? Sitting through an hour of Latin. No, it, it's, I was always in trouble. <laughs> always in trouble. You can't sit like that. So I, I lived in this world where pain could just come on you arbitrarily. You, you don't know why it's there. ADHD kids usually don't connect the dots. I'm being punished, but I don't know why. That was my life story. And... and uh, um, uh, yeah, so I'm just living in that kind of a world. And so the way I survived... I remember this time where, where I'd taken a beating and I went out back. I grabbed some matches on, along the way because I was going to be rebellious. And my dad was a chain smoker, so there's always matches around, but we weren't supposed to play with them. But I grabbed them because I'm being rebellious and I go out back. And I remember lighting these matches and throwing them into the river. It, it, we had a little creek in our backyard. And I was so mad, crying. And I, I remember I said to myself over and over again, if mom doesn't like me, so I'm not going to like her. Mom doesn't like me, so I'm not going to like her. I just keep on. As my little, you know, I was six years old in Lansing, Michigan. It's my way of trying to flip her off. I'm not going to like her again. And I said, she's never going to hurt me again. And what amazes me is that she didn't. She couldn't. Uh, whatever she did, whatever Mother Superior did, whatever the nuns would do, I never cried. I, for, from the age of six up to the age of 20, okay, I cried twice. Once, because this girl that I really like dumped me, okay? So I'm not a monster, okay? I can feel. I, 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 and, and once because I thought my dad was going to kill my stepmother, which that didn't bother me, but then he would go to prison, which that made me cry. So I cried twice in all that span. But see, what happened is, I, I, that little covenant, I, I cut the cord. You can't hurt me. And you can do that, even at the age of six. But if you do that, you pay a price, because when you cut that cord, you cut the cord for everything. And, and yeah, you don't feel the pain, but then you don't feel the other stuff either. And, and it felt strong to me. Like, no matter what she did, I could smile. I wouldn't give her the satisfaction of crying. Uh, it felt strong. And as our family was falling apart and blowing apart, whatever, other people were upset. But I, was, I, I, I didn't skip a beat. Mr. Cool, just above, above feeling, and it feels strong, but actually it's very, very weak. And at age 20, the Lord said, it's time to start dealing with this. And so he reveals that I've got this deep anger there that I'm not letting myself feel. And when I began to feel it, I really began to feel it. Um, and I had to deal with it. And what the Lord revealed to me, and this was in a Pentecostal church that didn't talk liberal theology, all right? Um, the wound that I had is created because as a kid, I needed this love, this level of love, a mother's love. But what I got was this, sometimes arbitrary, capricious abuse. And the gulf between what I needed and what I got creates anger. And the anger is simply yourself's way of saying, I am worth more than what I'm being treated as. And that actually is a healthy sentiment. I am, I'm, I'm worth more than this. But while that's a healthy sentiment at first, it's a not a healthy sentiment to swallow and to live with. Paul says, be angry, be angry, and don't sin. First, uh, Ephesians 4.25. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And then he says, don't give the devil a foothold. Because when you go to bed with your anger and you don't deal with it and you're not honest with it, but you put on a Christian smile and pretend like everything's okay, you're going to bed with your anger. And when you go to bed with your anger, Paul says, it becomes, and he uses a different, he says, don't let the sun go down on your 
And now he uses a different word in Greek. It's, it's paraorge, which means like bitterness. Your anger becomes bitterness when you sleep on it and don't deal with it honestly. And I, for years and years and years, just stuffed it. And so now what the Lord was saying is that, yeah, that gulf between what you needed and what you got creates anger, but we can, we can eliminate that gulf because I want to give you the love that you needed when you were a kid. And I know you know I'm a very good father, but did you know I'm a very good mother? God, God revealed God's self to me as the mother, as we see in Isaiah 49, who will not ever forget me, the mother who nurses me, the mother who cares for me. There's a dimension of motherly love that I desperately need. I remember as a kid, always longing for it. I would sit, honestly, I would sit in this church, while well, masses in Latin, and all the pictures of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and even the saints, all seemed at best uninteresting, but most of the time it was kind of almost scary. And plus, I'm an ADHD kid who's a demon child, who's acting out, always in trouble, going to Mother Superior's office, so I don't think I'm going to get into heaven. But I have one hope, and that hope I found in Mary. In the Catholic Church, you're taught you can pray to Mary, and, and, and the, we had in this church with all the austere pictures of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there was a statue up front of Mary, and it was beautiful. She was beautiful. She was serene. She was holding the, the, the Christ child, looking down with this radiant look. And I remember sitting there in Catholic Church trying to find something to think about so I wouldn't get in trouble, and, and I'd look at Mary, and I, I was something to be jealous of Jesus. It's like, oh, what would it be like to be, I imagine myself as a little baby in Mary's arms, you know, and, and sometimes I'd actually feel kind of a mother's love as I would imagine that. I think God works through every means possible to try to bring whatever healing he can bring into any person's life, and he was meeting that little kid through Mary. But I, I, it, was, it was my longing for, gosh, I wish I had a mother like you, and so I would say to Mary, Mary, look at, I know, I'm, will you tell the Father, Son, Spirit, I'm trying my best, and I don't want to go to the devil's place, okay, so, but will you tell me I'm trying my best, put in a good word for me. The nuns used to always say that, you know, a good Jewish boy listens to his mother, and so if you want to get to the son, talk to the mother. So that was my ticket. But it reflected this yearning for this mother's love. I, I was jealous of friends who had mothers that were loving. I was at a friend's house one time, and we're downstairs playing. And I, I hear someone coming downstairs, which has to be the mother. She's the only one home. And so I say to him, where do you hide? Because I always hid. When I heard my mother, that's what you, you hide. I didn't want to be around. It was never good news if mom's showing up. And he goes, hide? Why would you hide? She's bringing us lunch. Oh, look, she brought us some, whatever it was. And, and then I saw her come down. And she's smiling and she scratches his head. And I'm like, oh, can I have your mother? Could you adopt me? I have this mother's love. At the age of 20, I finally just began to discover that mother's love. And, and I, 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 can't, I just felt the... the we always say God's a good, good father, and God is, but God's a very good mother. If, that, if it's a mother that you need, he's a great friend. If it's a friend you need, he's a great savior. If it's a savior you need, and we all need a savior, right? He's a great king of kings. He's a great lord of lords, the word of life, the creator of all life, the sustainer of all that's living, the source of all, of all that's beautiful, that's all that's good, that's all that's joyous. His name is Jesus Christ, amen? And so when you discover him, I encourage you to let the fullness of who God is minister to you. Knowing God as mother has honestly been uh, the most healing thing in my life. And uh, I share that because maybe for some of you, you'll find that that will be a healing thing. Uh, is there a gap in your soul between what you needed and what you got? Let God close that gap, whatever that gap is. Uh, God's a genius at healing and bringing good out of, heal, uh, out of evil. So I just testified to Dad that, yeah, you know about this long thing of abuse that was going on, but God has been healing me, and he's still in the process of healing me. 
filling me with that mother's love, but also I, I introduced Jesus into some of my memories, the, the abusive memories, and, and, and just watch Jesus. He doesn't change the past, but he changes the meaning of the past. If we let him into those, those, those memories, and I, I have a book on that. It's called Seeing is Believing. If you want to talk about imaginative prayer, it's a big part of the church tradition. So I said, Dad, God brought this healing into my life, and God can heal your wound too. And you need healing as we all do need healing. We're all broken in different ways. But Jesus heals our brokenness when we let him. And my dad did experience a lot of healing. It, it, one of the most amazing things to me was, you know, when a person comes to Christ when they're 74 years old, you don't expect a lot of radical change. Like now he's going to become a street evangelist or something like that. Um, I was just glad to get him in. You know, this is, I never, I couldn't. After that letter, after that letter, before then it was hard for me to even imagine that he could actually come become a believer. But after that point, you begin to see his tone change. He began to get a glimpse of a God that was worth believing in. He didn't have that before. And, and, and so the tone of his letters changed. He's a little softer. He begins to ask a little more from the inside. And I knew, the it took another two years for him to come to Christ, but I, I, it, it, about a year out, I could see the writings on the wall. God's got him. Plus, I had everyone in the universe praying for him, so he didn't stand a chance, the poor sucker. So <laughs> it, uh, he finally got to the point, he called me up, and it, and it wasn't like you hear about these dramatic conversions, you know, just as I am, and people crying, and angels singing, or whatever. None of that with my dad. He called me up as basically, well, I, kinda, I, I don't have any more objections that I can think of. Um, he says, I still have a lot of questions, and I'm not sure, so, so I, I, I can't really say I have faith, but I'm not certain. And I said, Dad, no one's asking you to be certain. Come on, we're human beings, so what can we be certain of? Uh, the question is, is this, do you have enough evidence here to say this is the most reasonable way, this is the most reasonable thing to believe, and so this is the most re reasonable way to live. Are you ready to, are you, are you confident enough to start living as though Jesus Christ was really Lord? Because that's what faith is. That's what you do. And the more you do that, the, the, the more you grow in it. But just start living as though you believe that Jesus was Lord because you do believe Jesus is Lord. Yeah, you're not certain about it. You still have a lot of questions. Let's talk about those questions. We can do that along the way. But start, start talking to him. Just start building that relationship and see what happens. And boy, did a lot of beautiful things happen. Um, my dad, prior to coming to Christ, was, he, as I said, he's this angry, curmudgeon guy. Starting with his conversion, he begins to go in this opposite direction. He, he, he begins to get sweet. He begins to get gentle. He takes on a humility. He was so arrogant before. He was a know-it-all. And he, he becomes humble. And, and I can't say his language cleaned up a whole lot, but, but in other respects. But even his language, when he would swear, it often was uh, to express gratitude. It was the most amazing thing. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I'm so blankety-blank lucky. God's been so blankety-blank good to me. He, he, that's how he talked. It's, it's, uh, but, 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 you know, okay, so you can't teach a dog, an old dog, all new tricks, but you can teach him some new tricks. So he, he learned this humility, and he had, a, like, a childlike faith. Uh, it was amazing that this guy who once, he, he was so, I think, had a pride trip going with his intelligence, but after this conversion, one time he, he was so, so innocent and childlike. He's, he had another stroke. He started having these strokes. He had 10 of them before he died, between the ages of 74 and 84, but after one of these strokes, one of his last ones, I said, and it really left him debilitated. He couldn't walk any longer. He had trouble talking. Uh, and so I said, Dad, you got a lot of time on your hands now, and so I want to make you my prayer warrior. And I gave him this assignment. You, you keep me covered in prayer. Keep my family covered in prayer. I told him how important this is. 
Don't you think that you're being put off the pasture here? This is the most important job you can have. And most people are too busy to have this job, but you're especially designed with your unique circumstances. Man, keep me covered in prayer. And then he, he, he had a kind of a questioning look on his face, and I said, what is it? And he goes, okay, well, is it okay if I just think the prayers? Because talking is kind of tough. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's just, I love, yes, Dad, you can think the prayers. You don't have to say them. It's just the innocence was so, you know, the last 10 years, we started getting letters coming back. Uh, once the letters from a skeptic came out, so about the last five years of his life. But he would come to tears so often. This is a guy who never cried except when he was drunk. And now he cried all the time. And I, we'd read letters of people coming to Christ, some on their deathbed, because as a result of this correspondence that we had, and he'd just be moved to tears. And he said, all my life I wanted to be a somebody and I never was. You know, he tried to, he always had dreams of getting rich, but he never was really good at making money. And, and, and so his life was kind of disappointing, but he said, you know, it's so weird here. I, now I'm debilitated and I can't do anything, but my life feels like it's filled with meaning. I've never had more meaning in my life. And, and there was this joy and this peace that was there. Uh, it was a miracle when you begin to see the, the change that was wrought in him. The last conversation I had with him, we had a family reunion of sorts up in his house. He had now moved to central Wisconsin. And for 10 years, he and his wife, this was his fourth wife, um, my, my mom was the second, his wife, and then my stepmom was the third. And then he, got, he married this wonderful lady at the end because she was incredibly patient, and my dad required a whole lot of patience. Thankfully, I didn't hear that gene at all. Uh, no one has to exercise patience with me at all, but my dad was a case. So, so this lady was very, very patient. It was wonderful. But they, they finally got their dream home up, up in Wisconsin. They moved there, and the scenery was beautiful. But by this point, my dad's almost completely blind, almost completely deaf, can't walk on his own, uh, is incontinent, has to wear diapers. Uh, this once proud man was dependent on everyone for everything. And yet, there was a peace that was there. The old Ed Boyd, he compl- if, you, if he had something wrong, the universe knew about it. Everyone had to know about the ache and pain of my dad because it's unfair that he has that. And now here he is with all the reasons in the world to complain and there's this peace and contentment. And so, you know, he can't hear anything. So we'd be talking about football or whatever, you know. Having, and then he'd blurt out something totally irrelevant. Hey, what do you think about, you know, the Vikings or whatever. And, it worked. and so we kind of, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, let's go and then move on. But at one point, I forget what we were talking about, but, but he starts to cry. And so I go up to him and I scream into his ear because that's the only way you could communicate with him. Dad, why are you crying? Why are you sad? We're all here. We're having a good, good time. And he goes, I'm not crying because I'm sad. And he's saying this with his Bell's palsy, so slur big. I'm not sad. Uh, I'm crying because the Lord's been so God blank good to me. <laughs> God, he's been so God blank. He's been so good to me. And, and, and here he is. He can't see. He can't hear. But he's giving thanks to God, folks. Uh, look, at, that's the strongest power in the universe that can do that. You can take that old Greg, old Ed Boyd, and transform him into this. Three weeks later, he had a major, major brain hemorrhage, and he died a few weeks after that. Uh, folks, so often f- people seem, maybe you can't imagine them ever being a Christian. Uh, they seem hard to the gospel. They seem resistant. They seem uninterested. They're just so thoroughly pagan. They like their life being pagan. Why would they be interested in, in Jesus Christ? But you got to know that there's always much more going on in a person's life than meets the eye. Uh, you know, it says in Samuel that, that we judge by the outside, but the Lord sees the heart. My dad on the outside looked completely impervious to the gospel. 
But looking back on it, that imperviousness, that, that show of strength, religion is stupid, born-again types are all idiots, all that. And this is the guy who was against prejudice, right? <laughs> all born-again types, they're all just idiots, that's right. But see, it was a facade. It was a facade. It, deep inside, that there was a wound and a hunger. It just getting, took some love and, and, and thinking and talking to get through that. Um, be asking God, if you're a believer here, uh, who would God put on your heart to, to start praying for uh, and, and start sharing with it? Don't sell anything. I think one of the reasons why the Letters from a Skeptic has had such success, it's, it's been by far the, the, the most meaningful book I've ever written in terms of the impact on people. But one of the reasons is because people see there that it's just a father and son talking. I, I don't try to sound like I got all the answers. And, and, and it, no, it's just out of love and respect we're, 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 we're communicating here. And that's all evangelism is. It's just, it's just out of love and respect. Share what's important to you. Hey, you're just a beggar that found a morsel of food and you want to share it with others. And I encourage all of us to be open, to let God be all in all. I think sometimes we put God in a little box. God's got to be this way. But if you just let God be a little bit more creative, a little bit broader, you might find that God could be a different way than you imagined and that could be a healing source in your life. And so just be open to God. Say, Lord, reveal to me what I need healing from. What is broken here? Maybe it's something you don't even know. Maybe you, like me, have stuffed it because it's too painful to look at. I encourage you to open that up and invite Jesus into it and watch what the creative Jesus can do and let him be as creative as he wants to be because he's a genius at being creative. He's a genius at healing. Let him do his healing work in Jesus' name. Amen? All God's people said. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for having me over.